Hello and welcome to Sanford Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Adam Bradley. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a blast. Great. Yeah, please, can you just go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah, I'm Adam Bradley, uh, Director of Technology at Builder.io. My background is I helped to create Ionic Framework, which is a UI library for mobile applications. I also created uh, Stencil.js, which is a framework to help build web components and to work into different frameworks. And currently I'm at Builder.io, I'm helping to build Quick with Mishko Hevery of the Angular fame. Actually, as of today, I'm going to be releasing another library called PartyTown, which is dedicated to running third-party scripts inside of a web worker. So I've been having a lot of fun and thrilled to be on. Great, great. So you have been busy, definitely over the past decade, creating and being involved in a lot of stuff. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are familiar with Ionic, but maybe can we start by, you know, just going through Ionic and other libraries and uh, things that you could mentioned and giving a brief overview of what they do. And then potentially we can also talk a bit more about technical details. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So Ionic is a UI library to help build mobile applications such that would go on to iOS or Android, but it's built using web development. So just using traditional CSS, JavaScript, HTML, things like that. And really, I helped build Ionic back, I think around 2013 is when we started it. So Max, Ben, and I started it out. Max and Ben had already started a company that was working on jQuery Mobile, which is a much older UI library for mobile applications. They had a drag and drop interface builder for it, and it had quite a few customers with it. The problem was that they wanted the UI library to act more like iOS and Android. And so really that was the creation of the experiment of what Ionic became today of like, could we use just CSS and JavaScript and HTML to build something that's just like mobile apps so that we can basically enable web developers to become native application developers. And so eight, nine years later, it's running great. It's working very, very well. We've even have another project called Capacitor that has been replacing Cordova. And so between the two of them, between Capacitor and Ionic, it's been a great, fun project to be a part of, you know, and there's quite a few users of it. And so that was really the creation of that first project, Ionic. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I want maybe to dive just a tiny bit deeper. So in practice, if I want to have like a UI framework for our whole, you know, product and company, which is spanning maybe web UI, desktop app, Android and iOS apps. So Ionic would help us distribute and maintain and integrate that UI framework across all of those different technologies. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you get into PWAs, so progressive web apps where you want to be able to have your app running inside of just a normal web browser. That's really where Ionic shines too, is because it basically is a web page to start with. And so that makes it a lot easier for web development team, any web developer to be able to build applications that work both in iOS, Android, but then also even in just a normal browser and you can install with PWAs, which is really becoming something that's been around for a few more years, but it's really becoming popular because it's just so much easier. It's so much more cost-effective to build with web development than to have native application developers and the constrained resources they have there. And so I think that's really been a big part of Ionic's success has been like how many more web developers are in the world that are able to build quality applications. The first versions of Ionic were in AngularJS. So if you think of 2013, 2014, that was really AngularJS was just exploding at that time. It was the number one framework uh, widely used, kind of before React was really widely used or even widely known about. 
And so we used that and that worked really well. And then Angular then moved to Angular 2. And so we went through quite a bit of work to transition Ionic to then run inside of Angular 2, which was really a very significant change. And so because Angular had changed so much, Ionic had to change so much. So then all of our users also had to rewrite all of their applications. And so that whole experience was pretty difficult for all involved, myself, every single Ionic developer, Angular developer had to go through this transition. And at the same time, React really became popular. And then another thing called Vue became popular. And then another thing called Svelte became popular. You know, so all these things are popping up and they're all really good. You know, like they're all, you know, have their, you know, use cases for why they're a great framework, right? And so instead of trying to argue that you should just use this one framework, you know, web team might have a reason to prefer Vue or prefer React. And so that's really, you know, we're worried about Ionic not being able to adjust to all these different frameworks. And so that's kind of the creation of what Stencil was which sounds kind of silly. It's like, well, you created another framework to work with frameworks. That's kind of not the right way of saying it. I misspoke earlier. I called uh, Stencil's framework. I like to not consider it a framework because really it's about building components that work anywhere and to be framework-less and to be kind of timeless too because they're really just built on top of custom elements. So Stencil helps build custom elements that are really just elements, right? And just like a div, just like a DOM element. Just like a DOM element, so like just like a div, you can add styles to a div, can add an ID, you can have inner HTML. That's not going to change. That's kind of locked in time. That's an API that will continue to forever work. That's kind of the same idea I like to think of as custom elements, or also it's more commonly known as web components. But I do like to point out that a web component is just a term. It's not an actual technology, whereas a custom element is something you'll find in the MDM docs and things like that of how it works, the API that's inside of the browser. And so anyway, Stencil is using the custom elements API so that we can create an element that can be used by any framework, whether you're in React or Vue, you name it, Stencil's components are going to work inside of that. The issue that we found is that people don't want to use custom elements inside of React. They don't want to use custom elements inside of you know, Vue and things like that. They want to use a Vue component and they want to use a React component. And so instead of rewriting all of Ionic, which we had done two or three times beforehand and takes a lot of work, we decided to instead write Ionic in custom elements and then create wrappers around each of these custom elements so that you can use it in the traditional framework sense. So like Angular will use ng modules and the components will have be all lowercase, you know, so ion button would be ion dash button all lowercase. Whereas with React, you're going to import the ion button. It's going to be capital I, capital B. And it's an object. It's not uh, just a global component, things like that. So there's these minor differences, but in the end, what gets rendered is identical. What gets rendered is the same concept of, you know, it's HTML being rendered, right? So React, Vue, you name it, they can all render HTML just fine. And that's what the big idea is, is that Stencil was able to allow Ionic to work in all of these different frameworks and kind of be more future friendly. And it's been working great, to be honest. You know, really Ionic React is used quite a bit more than Angular. Actually, I don't know what the latest stats are, but it's being used quite a bit because React really is the most popular framework right now. But at the same time, the core developers of Ionic are not having to rewrite code and refactor code and worry about like, well, how is this going to work in this framework? How is it going to work in this framework? They just worry about writing Ionic. And then the compiler of Stencil is able to transition this to the different frameworks and make adjustments. And that's kind of the big idea. We've just released the CICD for MonoRepo's ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the monorepo way of software development. 
You'll learn how to build a monorepo-first CI-CD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a monorepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo dash CICD. Yeah, so you automated yourself out of the job. <laughs> yeah, right. Basically. Which is fantastic because as you mentioned, as technologies progress, you know, rewriting stuff just to adjust is like huge burden. Big burden. The frustrating part is like, if you look at Ionic 1 and Ionic 2, what rendered on the page was really the same thing. It's still CSS and HTML, but how those components worked was entirely worlds different. That was the, I guess, the big aha moment. It's like, well, if we write this for React, it's the same thing. We got to completely rewrite everything to make it just work in React. And we already knew how hard it was to work in just one framework, let alone four different ones, right? And in the end, <laughs> the HTML and CSS is still identical. And uh, when you click a button, the JavaScript still needs to run a certain bit of code. And that's why we wanted to create Stenso was kind of be that abstraction layer to be able to adjust, let the compiler make the adjustments to the different frameworks and as frameworks improve and things like that. And even Angular has made different changes, how Angular works over time. And so we've been able to make changes to the Stenso compiler. But at the same time, that Ionic core developers are not having to rewrite anything. And the biggest win is I think the Ionic end users, the developers of Ionic, are not having to drastically make big changes between Ionic 4, 5, and 6, things like that. And if you look at even our change logs, you'll see that, is that developers have really been able to write the same code this whole time, whereas between Ionic 1 and 2 was a drastic difference. And so it's really been, you know, taking the burden off of the end developers too. It sounds that you have managed to find a very successful recipe. And talking about Stencil, here it also seems that you have very successfully found the biggest common denominator and that it's very elegant, the solution. Can you maybe talk maybe a bit, was it like a journey to discover how Stencil, what abstractions are really fit? Sounds really elegant. Can you maybe comment on the Stencil? How happy are you with the final product? <laughs> I'm really happy with Stencil and the big aha moment again was kind of like, we really do want to let the computers do a lot of the boring stuff for us. You know, like all of us, any one of us can write minified code, right? Like we can write one character code. We can make things a lot smaller and minify ourselves, but that's dumb. I mean, that's useless. We need machines to do the minifying so that we can, as developers can read the code. It's very verbose. It's very easy to understand. And then some other machine makes it tiny so that it's faster and things like that. I like to think of kind of the same concept of what the stencil compiler is doing. It's like, we want to make it very easy to understand, make it verbose. So it can be as big and large source code as you want. And I think that's a good thing. And then let the compiler optimize it, make it smaller, be able to put certain components together because they see that they're used together. So let's bundle those things together, be able to adjust to have the different packaging systems. So like there's, you know, system JS, UDM, CommonJS, ESM, all these different module systems, which again is kind of like, they're all doing the same thing. They're just different. And so Stencil handles all that stuff for you. And that's also something that, you know, you really don't need to waste your time trying to learn because, <laughs> you know, all of those are going away. ESM is really the standard now, what everything is transitioning to. Stencil has been out since I think 2017 when ESM was really emerging, really wasn't baked into any browsers yet or even Node.js yet. Today, it really is. It's practical to use without any sort of polyfilling or even using CommonJS. And so I think that also speaks to the power of the compiler that 
we didn't have to rewrite any of stencil components, any of the Ionic components as the module systems have adjusted. We've been able to just say, we'll use this output target instead. And then stencil knew how to rebundle it, knew how to change the exports and things like that. So really it was, you know, one developer that was able to take off thousands of hours of other people in the world trying to figure out how these module systems should be put together. That's kind of the why Stencil was created was to help let the machine do a lot of the hard work and not even the hard work, the work you should be bothering yourself with. You should be doing stuff that's creative, being building things, you know, visual things, stuff that's more fun to develop, not like how should things be minified and bundled. Yeah, yeah, great. And moving forward, in your initial introduction, it seems that, you know, Builder.io, everything around that, it is the next step in your career. Can you introduce us to that change? And Yeah. Yeah, Builder.io, I've been doing Ionic for a long time. Um, still great friends with everybody there. It's a great business, great company. Continues to grow, but I was just ready for a new challenge. That's when, you know, Builder.io really looked a lot really interesting because it's something that even before Ionic, my career was largely in e-commerce. And so I worked on two e-commerce sites here locally, really enjoyed working on things like that. And so as I came across Builder.io and the opportunity there, it really started to make sense of kind of something else I was interested in. And a lot of it has to do with adding performance to the site. It's a visual editor for building landing pages and things like that, which is commonly used for e-commerce. So a lot of the customers are e-commerce. And when it comes to e-commerce, the faster your website is, the more you sell. It's somewhat as simple as that. Like if you have a slow site that takes 10 seconds to load, it doesn't bring up any images, it's too janky, things like that, you're going to lose customers. So if you have it fast and snappy, loads really quick, it just makes all the sense in the world that you're going to have better sales. So being able to improve the performance, being able to make those sites really snappy and fast is really interesting to me. And that's what I enjoy working on. That's what I did a lot of work with Ionic, trying to make sure that that was fast on really low-end devices, especially low-end Android devices. The challenge of making that fast is fun. And so that's why I joined Builder and really working with Mishko Hevery, who is the creator of Angular, who's also now with Builder. We're working on a new framework called Quick. And really Quick's purpose is to make these landing pages extremely, extremely fast. And so we're not really building Quick in this you know, isolated environment and just hope that people use it. We actually have a real use of being able to have tangible, we can make all of these sites extremely fast by using Quick. And this is even to the point of the developers that are using Builder.io do not have to learn Quick. They do not have to use this. They have to transition how they're doing things. They can continue to use Builder exactly how they want, but we will be able to eventually flip the switch of like, now your sites are extremely fast. Now they're using just HTML and CSS. And as you interact with it, it will be using the JavaScript, uh, lazy load the JavaScript that you need, things like that. So conceptually, it's very similar to Stencil which is also why it attracted to me is like it has a very similar example, but it's more like server-side render-based and then lazy loading just the JavaScript that you know is needed for interaction. Other frameworks, they're able to lazy load per page, but at the same time, your listeners, your click listeners, things like that, they're still within the closure of every single template, every single template within your system. So eventually you're still downloading most of your code. And you can see that in all your stack traces, you may have lazy loading happening, but at some point you end up getting the entire website, which is kind of like the exact opposite of what Quick wants to accomplish because you may not be using hardly anything. You might not use any JavaScript. And so for that case, like that site being just HTML, CSS can't get any faster. You cannot get faster in HTML, CSS, you know? So 
that's the fun part is that we're building this, you know, not in a silo, but we're building this with a real practical purpose of speeding up these sites and increasing conversion rates and things like that. We've just released the CICD for MonoRepos ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the MonoRepo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a MonoRepo first CICD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a MonoRepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo CICD. Let me rewind a bit to the top level. We talked about this you know, very important attribute of being, you know, very quick and then it bubbles up to sales and all that. The other important component of Builder.io is how easy it is to build by, you know, using drag and drop interface and tools. Can you also introduce us to that part? Yeah, sure. If you look back at the history of web development tooling, right, there's always like, you can hand code everything yourself in Notepad, or you can use a drag and drop interface builder but there's always this balance of what control you have, what control you don't have. And so if you use something like Wix, you're basically using their service on their servers and you can point it to like your domain or something like that. But regardless, you can't really integrate Wix inside of your server. So imagine uh, you're a large company with three decades of existing sites, existing infrastructures. You can't just switch that out overnight to use a different server. Right. Like there's good reasons that every company has their own servers. And when I even say your own servers, so it could even be your own AWS, your own serverless functions, things like that. You have your own setup, I guess is what I'm saying. So the difference than something like Wix is that you're able to then integrate this drag and drop interface builder, I guess, the results of it into your existing site. So then what that allows the developers to do is then let the marketers, designers and anyone else in the company be in charge of building these landing pages, be in charge of moving things around, A-B testing, all these different features that marketers would love to do themselves, but without a developer. That's really the sweet spot. And that's also something that really attracted to me is like I was shocked to realize that this really isn't a, a common thing. Again, there is something like Webflow where really the developer has to do a lot of the work and then they can push it live. And then there's stuff like Wix, you know, where you can do all this drag and drop interface builder, but then you really limited lockdown of your powers and you really can't push it onto your own service. So I find, you know, Builder is really that sweet spot where marketers can go in and designers, anyone can go in and build great landing pages, you know, change around the interface, change around the words, hit publish, and it's going to go live immediately. But inside of their existing sites, you know, like if they want to have an exact path fall under a certain landing page that they want, someone that isn't a developer could create that. And so it's basically kind of, you know, the concept of a headless CMS, except also with a UI, a visual editor. And so kind of similar to Contentful, or I think it's Prismic is the other one, but visual too. Of course, drag and drop, it's providing the visual side of things, but is there also those headless components which are supporting that interface? Are they part of Builder.io? Yeah, the other part that I guess I didn't really hit on yet is that really developers can build components. They can still have complicated components. You know, if they wanted to build a React component and put it into their Builder.io page and do something special, right? They have that power. And I guess that was the part that I missed out on is that it's that sweet spot where you can have a lot of that control. You can create an actual component 
which is very custom and things like that, and put that inside and rendered inside of your site too. And then someone else on the team can use that component. They can have it do something special, things like that. So you can have a developer build this component. Someone else can use it in a certain landing page, all their landing pages. And so again, it's that balance of letting a lot more control, but you don't need you know developer resources for any landing page or any change that you want made. I can say that this value proposal resonates very well with me. Like like the last ten years of you know developers and marketing and you know when developers have to help and what marketing people can do on their own. I mean that's actually not easy to solve. No, it's not, and it absolutely resonates with me because I've been a big part of that. Early part of my career was building landing pages for the marketing teams and things like that. You know, again working at an e-commerce site and being a web developer. You know, like tomorrow we're launching a Today Show, so we need this landing page working. Right. And so then you'd have to drop everything and make that work. You know, so there's always a struggle of resources of trying to web develop resources, trying to get, you know, marketers wanting this something done. And, you know, Steve, who's creator of Builder.io, when he explained this all to me the first time, I was just like, wow, this is, this actually would solve a lot of the problems, you know. And I'm even thinking of developers that have to do this as their day job, you know, it's like how much of their time could be solved. And again, they don't have to worry about publishing the page and pasting the code into the right spot, things like that, you know, like, they can go back to doing creative things. They can go back to building, you know, the next big thing, the next big feature, something like that. And at the same time, marketers can go ahead and build that landing page that they want. They can write the exact words that they want. They don't have to have that meeting between the two different worlds. And so I think it enables both parties to work faster and work on the areas that they're more interested in. So like, yeah, that's why I was really excited. You know, as I learned more about Builder, it makes complete sense. And especially from my personal experience, I think this would have really helped in my own career. When you started talking about, you know, building stuff, visual stuff, it's a drag and drop and all that. I remember a tool you probably know about. It was called like Dreamweaver. <laughs> yes, I absolutely know Dreamweaver. Yeah. Yeah, it was like early 2000s. So would you say that it kind of is the 20 years later? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, stuff like Dreamweaver and front page, you know, like I think when a traditional developer hears, you know, drag and drop interface builder, they think of those tools and they think of the challenges that they had, like those things actually made really junk HTML. They weren't easy to deploy, things like that. And so that's the challenge that we're faced with of trying to explain like, no, 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 it's not Dreamweaver. Actually think more like something like Webflow, except that you're not requiring a developer to do Webflow. It's more like Webflow for marketers. That's my take anyways. That's how I would describe it. But yes, that's the challenge is to not try to think of it as the same thing as what Dreamweaver was. And I guess front page, that's the one that I always think as a nightmare was front page and the code that they created. I don't know if you're facing that challenge, but I would say that you wouldn't because I'm always surprised in our industry how many young people are there. I think that it's very much possible that actually majority of our listeners don't even know about those tools that existed 20 years ago. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm realizing how old I am. I mean, I really started learning the HTML in like 1994 and like looking back, it's like, oh, well, that was like the first year of the internet. It's like, so I've kind of been doing this from the beginning. I seem to have a pattern when I, at some point in the episode, mentioned some technology, which is from early 2000s or 90s. And I managed to make guests feel old <laughs> since most of them are familiar with those times and technologies. I did a talk at, was it .js? two years ago. And it goes through a lot of the history of the web. And I'm a history buff. And I love like, you know, having kind of lived it and aware of each era, you know, Ajax, jQuery, 
framework wars, you know, like if I've lived through all these eras, it's kind of fun to look back and like lessons learned and things like that and talk about them. Yeah, yeah. And there are always those cycles. Something is done, then it's redone 10 years later with iterative improvement and then cycle repeats. I had heard some quote about like, everything in computer science was invented in the 70s. We just keep relearning it or something like that. Not far from the truth, probably. <laughs> okay, to get back to the present day, you also mentioned the library, open source library. Yep, party town. So the quick backstory to that is, you know, so we're building quick. We've got, you know, our own internal examples of showing how quick is extremely fast. Again, because it's building just HTML, CSS, and you really can't get faster than that. The problem is that every e-commerce site, you know, and really any site in any business needs to have third-party scripts, needs to have analytics. So Google Analytics, Google Tag Manager, HubSpot, Intercom, you name it, you know, your businesses need to have that. I mean, it's really a necessity to gather data and be able to make decisions off that data. And so to say, like, we'll just don't do third-party scripts, it's just, it can't be done. And so we have quick running. We have these awesome examples of them being extremely fast. Then immediately we see like, oh, but we're still getting bad Lighthouse scores. We're still getting bad whatever scores. Why is that? And it always comes down to, well, it's Google Tag Manager is, you know, 500 kilobytes of code. And it's doing a lot of stuff that's really tasking the main thread. And then you add intercom. Intercom's like another 800 kilobytes. And so it's not that far-fetched that you've got a couple megabytes of someone else's code running on your main thread eating up your resources. And so that's where we got to thinking like, well, how can we move third-party scripts off of the main thread and into a web worker so they can take as much resources as they want inside the web worker, take as much time as they want, run fast, slow. We really don't care because the main thread is for your code. The main thread is to be as fast as possible for your user. And so that's what PartyDown does. It basically makes it easy to put a Google Tag Manager into a web worker to not take away resources from your site and then really the challenge is, you know, someone who's used web workers in the past, you'll say like, but that's asynchronous. Like you can't access the DOM, you can't access window or local storage, things like that. And if you do, you have to have asynchronous calls to that because to go to use post message between the window and the web worker has to use a callback. And so that's really what part town is actually solving is that it's able to make those calls synchronously. And so if you can do synchronous calls between the web worker and the main thread, and that means you can do document.getElement, document.getComputedStyle, things like that. Those blocking calls will actually work. And so if you have actual blocking calls working of main thread access, then you can run the entire third-party library into a different thread. And the third-party itself, it's none the wider. It has no idea that it's actually not inside of the main thread because everything is working as expected. Everything is coming back synchronously. But then to your code, you basically freed up that all those megabytes of JavaScript usage and memory for just your site and things like that. And so still extremely experimental. We just got the alpha version out just today. I'm going to be releasing a blog about it, but we're running it on a couple pages inside of Builder.io to collect the data to make sure that things are working as expected. And so far, so good. Our analytics seem unaffected by it so far. And so we're going to continue to keep testing it out, rolling it out further and further, optimizing it more. But I do want to say again that, you know, this is experimental. It's alpha, you know, we'd love to have people test it out, use it, give us feedback, you know, try to make it work within your services, your use cases, probably don't put it on your homepage today. During the whole time you were presenting this, I'm wondering if I should ask or not ask how you have managed something which was, you know, by design meant to be very asynchronous, and then you moved it to be synchronous. How deep did you have to go? 
that's the biggest challenge. The big trick is that it's using a service worker under a different scope. It's not overtaking, you know, a normal site service worker. It's a different one under a party town directory. And then a service worker, you can intercept requests, right? So you can intercept a request locally and you can respond asynchronously. So there's that one side of it. And then inside of the actual web worker, there's one weird trick that just web workers can do. And that is to be have synchronous import scripts and synchronous XHR requests, right? That's only allowed inside of a web worker, which is a unique thing. And so it's basically the combination of those two in that when you do document.get element, or let's do an easier one, you know, body.get with. That's a synchronous call. It's to a getter. We need to get it immediately. We can't have a callback or a promise on that. And so what's really happening is that there's a communication layer that has a proxy around document. It creates this proxy object. And when you make a call to .client with, it then goes to the import scripts, which is a synchronous call to a URL, which then actually goes to the service worker. The service worker then becomes an asynchronous call and then it can asynchronously access the main window, read document.body.client with, respond its value, respond to the request, and then import script, as far as it knows, was synchronous. And so that's the big trick. And I will say that I see this as today's trick to make it work everywhere today. So this is going to work in Safari, Firefox, you name it, all the modern browsers today. But the future is really using Atomics. Atomics would be the correct way to do all of this. Atomics is only working in Chromium right now. And Safari had it working at one point, but removed it when there was that exploit, the Spectre exploit, like two or three years ago. They removed it. So if they were to move it back in, and Atomics is part of the JavaScript standard, things like that, that's really the correct way. That's how we want to move forward with it, is that we can have these blocking calls and converting basically what was asynchronous to be synchronous let the blocking happen inside of the web worker. And then at the same time, the main thread is really not bothered by any of this. It can be asynchronous all at once and it lets the communication layer handle all of this. And all of this as of today is six kilobytes of code. So, which is a lot of fun. So it's able to emulate the entire DOM. So document window, all of them in six kilobytes of code. Cause really it's just forwarding on, Hey, I want to access this. We didn't recreate the DOM. Like you know, think of something like JS DOM, which runs inside of Node.js, where it's recreating every single thing. We don't have to do that because really we just have a JS proxy that says like, hey, I'm a document. When you call a getter, I'm going to forward this getter onto the main thread and the getter will retrieve that information, and send it back. So it doesn't really have to know about the document. It just has to have proxies. I think that you explained this very, very well, <laughs> though it's a um, couple of tricks glued together. Yeah, it's always fascinating how much hardcore technology has to put into place to do something is I want to have a quick website. I want to have a quick landing page. And then I need to create you know, this thermonuclear reactor in order to be able to deliver that. Yeah, right. I want to make sure that everything is small and fast. So it's really important for me to make sure it's small, but also, you know, it'd be pointless to have a 200 kilobyte library to do the same stuff because now we just traded a couple hundred kilobytes for the same couple hundred kilobytes. And so it's important to me to make it extremely small. So it's written, so it minifies extremely well. And it's also written where it's like, we care about the performance on the main thread, but we really don't care about the performance on the worker thread. Because really, when it comes down to it, third-party scripts are asynchronous. You know, really Google Tag Manager is asynchronously sending beacons back to Google. 
on its own time, right? And so it doesn't have to be extremely fast on that end. And so that's also part of its design. And that's kind of opposite of something like WorkerDOM. WorkerDOM is well-known, like a cool project that the AMP team created to kind of put your application inside of a worker. Well, this is kind of opposite of that. You know, Partytown is really saying like, no, the main thread is for your application. Do everything you want, use all the resources you want, and throw all these other guys into the web worker so that they can take their time over there. Yeah, yeah, because humanize the priority. <laughs> Great. It was very, very interesting. We went over a number of technologies in depth. I hope the listeners will also enjoy going in depth around these technologies. Again, thank you so much. And we'll be sure to include links to Party Town and all the other things that you have mentioned. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. This is a blast.